the pundits and the people that like to comment on the game will look at possession and will look at shots and will look at um, all kinds of other metrics that have very little to do with heart and courage and commitment for one another. And I think that's what we haven't had this year. We've had some pretty football games, and you know what? We've lost those. Because it goes back to saying it's okay to be who we are. It's okay that we don't have 150 passes in 30 minutes. It's okay if we don't have 150 shots on goal. This game is about winning. It's about thinking the game. It's about consciously not allowing teams to break you down inside your area. And more importantly, finding that moment to score a goal. That's what this game's about. People have lost the plot with all this passing and shooting percentages. And if you shoot from here and you, you, you'll score if you do it 12 times, well, I'm tell you what, the stats were wrong tonight. The stats were wrong tonight. And stats will lose to the human spirit every day of the week. Thank you very much. Welcome to American Soccer Analysis. I'm your host, Harrison Crow. That was Pablo Mastroianni, and I'm joined with Ian Lamerson, the guy that's going to ride virtually at my six. Um, so that being said, we also have two wonderful guests, Benjamin Bellman, and from around the MLS fantasy podcast sphere, you have Phil Luchford. How you doing, Phil? What's up, Maverick? What's up, Goose? Hey, Iceman. <laughs> so getting straight to it as i kind of uh opened already we opened kind of to pablo mastrani and his famous by now comments about analytics and well not analytics but stats being wrong and the human spirit and you know it's funny that we want to try to make this an us versus them conversation because it's not uh Anyone in an organization such as the Colorado Rapids, whether that's it, as a head coach or as a sporting director, is the, the case with Patrick Smith, you're going to be an incredibly intelligent and accomplished individual. Um, Patrick Smith, for those that don't know, is a sporting director for Colorado Rapids. He's been with UEFA, instituting uh, fair play finance, and with Ireland FA, uh, instituting the first European salary cap. So, He's a very analytical, business-driven, uh, data-driven business side uh, theology, <laughs> if you will. So with that in mind and kind of thinking about those two guys and how they're making decisions, um, Ben, you you do a lot around Colorado uh, and the organization, not necessarily the organization, but looking at their data, being involved with mm-hmm. uh, that organization as a fan. What are some mm-hmm. of the things that you see and their decision-making, and how they kind of go about things. Is this strictly, like, just quote-unquote dumb, or is there some type of thought process, whether that thought process we may or may not agree with? Well, I think it seems like a sort of um, a marriage of two philosophies, and I think you you can't compromise around um, Pablo Master any sort of defensive-first mindset. Like, that was his identity as a player, you know, uh, defensive midfielder for both the Rapids for a long time and the 
U.S. national team. Um, so that's, I don't think that's something you can compromise around him. And he's, he's about the human spirit sort of in, in the thick of the game. But I don't think that that sort of rules out an analytical mindset. And it sort of makes me think I have a good friend who's a San Antonio Spurs fan and uh, Greg Popovich, their coach, you know, it's very clear he's into the analytics, but he'd never let that on publicly. And I'm wondering if it's a little smoke and mirrors there because you look at um, what Podrick Smith has done in terms of revamping the team over the past couple of years, um, sort of focusing on getting efficient defenders. And now it seems like he sort of shifted his focus into getting kind of efficient attackers, trading, um, I mean, it's from my perspective, what seems to be a one-for-one trade, Sam Cronin for Mohamed Saeed, uh, where you, you have to sort of craft around that philosophy. And uh, you look you look at uh, uh, Matt Doyle this last week, previewing this week, um, he used one of my own graphs that shows how the, the shot quality that the Rabbits have produced goes way up in the first half. And that fits a sort of very strategic mindset where, you know, you have to look at the numbers to figure that out, where you, you go out, you try and score that early goal, and then you do the Pablo Mastroeni bit, where you bunker down, you play solid defense, and you sort of snuff out the opponent's opportunities. And that was definitely their MO last year. And despite the sort of instability in defensive positions this year, you know, it seems to be that's, that's what they're going for, but with a little more offensive bite this time around, if they can bring it together come June or July to make a run at the playoffs. And I think that's really, I think it's great that you kind of took it from the defensive part with Pablo, because as you said, that is what their bread and butter has been. And look, there's so much when we try to quantify defense and how defenses work and, and try to deconstruct um, why certain defenses are more effective than others. It's hard from a data perspective. There is so mm-hmm. many unknowns. There's so many just, uh, there's just so much chaos that's involved in that. Guys, uh, Phil and Ian, uh, Ian, I know you don't really dig through data very much, but just your observations on trying to identify uh, defensive things on what works and what doesn't, just from an observational standpoint. I think it can be a little bit... It's complicated. I mean, there are so many ways to defend effectively, uh, and and different teams kind of have different approaches to it. And... uh, yeah, like you said, like coming through data and things like that, it's really, really hard to kind of go, okay, this guy is great. Like, we're doing a great job of clearing the ball a lot. But, like, where are you clearing the ball to? Or immediately losing possession again, that sort of thing. And, and tackles aren't always great, depending on where they are on the pitch. So I, I can understand being a uh, uh, a manager like Pablo Mastroeni that just says, like, you know, I know what I want from my guys. And, and I, they know what, what, what I expect of them. And then that's what we're going to use, uh, you know, as our guide going forward. Ben's data really solidified something that I had been noticing just on visual inspection just by watching Colorado. And that's that they really go over and above trying to score at the beginning of the game so that they can then bunker for 60-plus minutes. Um, and this is what you saw in the, the match that led to Pablo's quotes when they played Sporting Kansas City. They, a, a center back scored a header off of a set piece in the 11th minute, and then he was able to bunker for 80 minutes. I mean, I think that's Pablo's ideal game. I think that's what he has in his mind as, as far as what he wants to see out of his team. There's like, uh, it, it, there's something kind of brutally effective about it. And I know it's not always fun for people to watch. And I know that there's a lot of complaints about that. Uh, but the other thing that, that I've noticed, and last year you saw 
this is an extremely effective strategy, and this this worked very very well, and they were managed to get a lot of points out of it. Uh, but yeah, it's such a thin margin of error too that if you're going to try to gamble on a one goal lead, like things can go wrong. And so far this year, mostly they have. Right before Pablo mentioned the that uh, the pundits are going to be looking at stats, and that's not what what's important. He said we want to make this a fortress uh, defense first, and. He says, that was one of the most important performances because I think it exemplifies everything that we are. So he's loving uh, an early set-piece goal. And then Colorado basically dropped nine defenders into the box for 80 minutes. And Sporting Kansas City ended up setting the record for most shots from outside the box in a single MLS game with 21. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. It's like you have... I mean, if you if you look at sort of the average quality of chances, the Rapids really dominated there, even though, you know, you don't think of them as that sort of offensive team. And I think, you know, you look at the way they were able to come back down against Columbus. Like, again, you look at sort of the underlying data over 2017. They haven't generated opportunities in the last 15 minutes of games, and yet they're able to pull two back. And I think you sort of have to look at a different way of thinking about offensive structure related to defensive structure in terms of a lot of offensive teams you know you want to at least uh, new york city fc you start deep you send your players forward and then you build from there whereas the rapids want to stay behind the ball they don't want to send too many people forward and i think maybe it's a little lucky that they were able to get two goals in the last 10 15 minutes of uh, this weekend's game but if, if you can sort of hold your ground and then create good chances you know maybe there aren't very many of them but if they're consistently pretty good as it seems like it's been for the rap is just a little bit of bad luck sometimes it's it's not a terrible formula to win if you really can sort of have that defense on lock and i mean i think yeah, like there's been no axel schuberg for a while you trade away sam cronin which was an unmitigated disaster in the beginning but they seem to be recovering now so these, these, there are different strategies to win, and it's not just sort of, you know, generate your chances all the time. So with, with that being said, let's kind of talk about the statistical attributes that we kind of notice on what wins games. Now, we, as you kind of alluded to there, Ben, there are certain things that don't necessarily mean that you're going to win. As you said, sporting, or I, I think Phil uh, mentioned, Sporting taking shot after shot from outside the box probably wasn't going to be helpful. And likewise, um, going at it full blast for the first, you know, 11 minutes, there's a little bit of luck that's, you know, that plays into it with getting a set piece header on frame. That in and of itself is very difficult. But if you have guys that have clearly defined talents, it's finding a recruiting those players and then organizing them in such a manner that exemplifies those those talents what type of statistical things are we looking for that exemplifies like what are what do you guys think Colorado wants to look at when they're looking through and saying hey we did a good job for x y and z reason at, on Monday what do you think you, they're looking for and what would you guys look for well I'll tell you what they don't want is the ball <laughs> and there seems to be a lot of uh, uh, I, something I see like bandied about a lot about teams that don't play possession soccer, aren't playing it the right way, that they don't have that sort of uh, sheen to their performance and, and, and their success is a little bit, bit misleading. But uh, Colorado don't want the ball. They want 
they want to win one-on-ones. Like, they want to win tackles. They want to, like, uh, turn things around very, very quickly. Like, they're not going to dominate any statistical quality except for tackles, probably, uh, throughout a match. I think that's a really good point, Ian. Mm-hmm. That's, that is a good one. I mean, I think in terms of, again, in terms of defensive metrics, you know, I don't think they care how many shots they give up. But if they're giving away bad shots like they were sort of in the first first few games of the season, minus the New England game, that's really not good. But you look at that Kansas City game and you look at that shot map and, you know, they just couldn't get in the box. And that's that's exactly what they're looking for. And I think that's definitely a short-term win. Like, if you're going to get a point, if you can stop them from scoring, regardless of what you do on offense. And that's that's Pablo's mindset. Well, going to that, I, I, I think that there's there's a difference, right? You don't want to cede that space, especially in the box. So if they're taking shots from outside the box, yeah, you're probably going to be fine with that. But I don't think you necessarily want to invite those shots, uh, even from outside the, side the box. So I guess every team kind of has its own um, opinion on how they're going to allow that stuff. You look at teams in the past, such as like LA. LA kind of had this um, during... Well, I want to say about three or four years ago during their kind of their, their height of power, if you will, they had that aspect that they just did not allow anything. We're not going to allow you to shoot. We're not going to allow you into the box. We're not, we're just going to smother you. And then we're going to control possession. I suppose Colorado, as, as you know, was aptly pointed out, they, they really don't do much with possession. So they're fine with you having it and dictating stuff in bad areas or, you know, maybe uh, low leverage areas, I should say. So maybe the shots aren't, they assume shots are going to be less impactful. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think they're sort of zoning. I mean, they're, they're kind of marshalling the ball into areas where they don't mind you having it. And that is when their game plan works. I think that's what's happening ideally. I think I should point out, and it's worth pointing out, though, that we're, we're being very kind to Colorado, but this is like the worst team in the league still. <laughs> and hey, now, uh, reasons bias. Let me, let me hang on to what I have. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and point out that this system, for all of its uh, practicality and, and, and seemingly uh, uh, a nice, simplistic approach, has not worked out very well for them uh, uh, for the most part this year. I think that's fair yeah. to a degree, but I think also in last year, I don't think that their success was as expected as you, as some folks, you know, will, will such as Pablo, I, I think it was kind of uh, him just being on a roll and having a mic talking about last season. Uh, but that being said, I, I still think that they built towards their strengths. And I think that's what a team like Colorado is going to do. And I think you're going to have seasons with, you're going to have like this, and then you're going to have the inverse of that, which was last season. And I think you're kind of playing. Uh, you're you're kind of you're hoping luck breaks in your in your favor. And when you do stuff like this, and when you play in this manner, um, I don't think they're the worst team in the league, even if they are only averaging one point a game. Um, but that being said, because um, DC United's just DC United's awful, but. Uh, yeah, RSL, I, I, RSL God, they're worse than us somehow. Even if they're above us on the table, that's the one one of the things yeah. I'm holding on to. But oh, <laughs> yeah, it, sounds like it's going to be a roster free for all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. When I when I say the worst in the league, I don't I don't mean by any sort of eye test or, or belief in, in what's happening. I'm just saying right now, looking at the standings, you know, they're they're not 
they're still in the basement. And uh, you got to get results if you're going to play this kind of game. And if you don't get results when you play this kind of game, you're going to get a lot of criticism. And I think that that's kind of what Pablo was responding to. Well, I mean, let's dissect this quote just a little bit further before we move on. He, the stats that he threw in the garbage was possession and shots. And I think he has a point there. I, I, possession used to have some correlation with success. But that correlation has dropped in MLS. I mean, with the advent of FC Dallas, that just plays in the counter and, and won the supporter shield last year. Uh, and that's continuing again, where there's teams that have 45% possession that are, that are doing really well in the league. So another one with shots, I think he has a point in that. He let, they let Sporting Kansas City take as many shots as they wanted from outside the box. And, um, and Tim Howard had one save in the entire game. <laughs> so... I mean, I think he has a little bit of a point with those two stats specifically can be very misleading. Um, but I think he's wrong in that he says all other kinds of metrics where we know that things like expected goals, uh, shots on target even have a little bit of a correlation, and especially chances created versus chances conceded has a high correlation to success in the long term in MLS. All right, guys. Well, this was a uh, I, I, <laughs> this was a really good conversation. We're gonna go ahead and uh, sew this up. Um, we're gonna kind of break here for a second, and we'll be right back here in a second. We'll talk a little bit about the Gold Cup preliminary preliminary roster, and uh, we'll go over a few MLS guys that did get selected, some that got snubbed, and I don't know. We'll throw a few other questions at these guys. All right, uh, this is American Soccer Analysis. Welcome back to American Soccer Analysis. Uh, I'm joined with Ian. We have a couple of uh, guests with us today. We got Ben uh, Bellman as well as Phil Lutchford from the MLS Fantasy uh, Sphere. I say that, Phil, because like that's what you seem to be associated most with. Well, yeah, I've been on the podcast a few times, but I'm also a part-time professional analyst. So, you, you, you are. You, you absolutely that's are. About the Western Conference. <laughs> well, well, we'll pick your brain here uh, very shortly about some players. Um, earlier this week, we uh, or this weekend rather, we had the forty-man Gold Cup preliminary roster revealed, which you know obviously leads us to over scrutinizing the possibility or not possible at all of players being selected. Ian, you're first up because your boy Joe, the man Bendick. Yeah, the, f- the most amazing goalkeeper in the world. <laughs> All I say is that Bruce Serena and I see eye to eye on this apparently Harrison, and I'm sorry he didn't go with your guy, or I guess he went with him. He brought him, but uh, yeah, I was really uh, pleasantly surprised. Uh, I didn't know that that Bendik was going to be 
one of those guys that was in that conversation, even though I felt like he at least deserved a mention, uh, along with, uh, you know, going on form this year, Tamelia, who did not get a call. Um, is he going to play? I doubt it, but it's uh, it's still a good experience for him, and I'm, I'm glad that he's getting some recognition for, for his quality play these last couple of years. Yeah, I kind of feel like this is more of an attaboy than uh, the start of an international keeper's career. I don't think this is the Joe Bendick era we're seeing. No. <laughs> as much as I'd like that. But I think uh, it's a positive sign in the sense that <laughs> well, yeah. if, you, if you have you know, people performing well in MLS and that they're actually getting looks and that's a sort of precedent that Arena is going to be setting for the next couple of years, then you know, I think everyone's going to be on board with that. Yeah, I love that. So uh, I have a specific uh, query to fill. Jesse Gonzalez was selected on this thing. What is happening? This comes two days after he announces he's playing for Mexico. Then we get stuff from his agent that says he has every plans to to go forward. Is this just like a great arena troll special or what? what's going on? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of think there's something going on with the Mexican Federation um, that led him to kind of steer clear. Um, I think Jesse Gonzalez, like from birth, I mean, he's, consider himself Mexican. Uh, he's always said that he wants to play for the Mexican national team. Uh, and like in the FC Dallas walkout video before the players walk out of the tunnel, he's in the tunnel with a, a Mexican flag around his shoulders. So I think he would prefer to play for Mexico. And I haven't seen any evidence of that changing. I mean, like you said, two days before he's on the gold cup roster, he recommits himself to Mexico. Um, now he was, the, the reason why I thought he did that is because he was angling for a trade to a, a Liga MX team. And maybe when that fell through, then he had a change of heart. Now, there's another perspective to consider. That's how much playing time he thinks he can get from either from Mexico or from the USA. And I hate that angle when, when players pick a country based on how much playing time they can get. I mean, I really think players should pick a country based upon which they feel more attached to or closest to or or more pride in, but that's a kind of a different story. If he was making the decision based on how much playing time, then he'd probably get more playing time in Mexico quicker. So oh, yeah. I really, I'm really confused about this decision. And uh, I, I, I don't, I don't know the inside scoop, but I think it has to do with maybe personalities or some sort of personal conflict that we don't see out in public. No, and I think that you kind of nailed it. There's a lot of different angles that you probably take with this. And there's a lot of different things that, uh, I, probabilities i guess of what could be happening and obviously we don't know what's happening but i think it's fair to kind of consider what the possibilities are what all could be on the table and then just kind of walking away and say well that's that's what could be happening and those are things that are possibilities so um, another interesting selection on the goalkeeper backline is bill hamid who has been had some really good moments and I don't want to even say good because I feel like that kind of almost trivializes how important he is to DC United and as I said in the last segment they are just terrible they are really not good right now and when they're really not good Bill Hamid seems to kind of step up even larger and then he has a couple of just awful moments that just it's just like gut-wrenching like the bottom of your heart just kind of uh, type moments like that's so DC type moments, and I don't know how, how else to kind of articulate 
how frustrating those are because that's what the rest of these, you know, the rest of MLS fans, that's what they're going to see is they're going to see those uh, quote unquote uh, European style howlers, you know, as you will. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. I really hope that Bill Hamid gets some minutes in this. I am less certain of that being that you have Brad Guzon and Tim Howard involved as well. But uh, what do you, what do you guys feel is the uh, over under on Bill Hamid? Is it just like one game at most? I'd be very surprised to see him get a game. I mean, I think uh, it's. I mean, you know, I think he's going to want to just just keep Howard and Guzan going. I mean, I, I'd be very interested to see how much there's a lot of rotation in this and, and who makes this absolute final cut. Um, I don't know. I, I, I would be I would be surprised if Hamid was was, was a, any kind of major part in this going forward. Jesse has to play a game. I mean, if, if he's actually going to be there, he has to be played so he can be kept tight immediately. Mm-hmm. It's true. That's true. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if that's the strategy or if that's even what's really bringing him. Cause I, I don't think I'm going to have to disagree with that. I think, uh, Gonzalez really does have a better chance of sort of cementing his place on a national team with the U S cause I mean, you just look at the performances that Ochoa on the Mexican team has given over and over and he's, he's 31 right now. Tim Howard and Brad Guzan are quite a bit older than 31, and as dominant Guzan's as they've 32. been. He's 32. He's 32? Oh, well, I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was like 35. He looks like 37 or 38. I, I would, I, yeah. He's been around for yeah. All right, that's yeah. my mistake. Yeah. But we'll see. And I, I think, uh, I mean, Ochoa is doing well, but I don't, he's not long-term like, I'm, like we're saying, and I think Jesse would step in quicker for Mexico because there's apparently there's nobody beyond that. I mean, I'm not up really up to date on the Mexican goalkeeping squad, but I have become in the last week a little bit better familiarized. And from what I understand, he would be next in line, basically. Interesting. Yeah. I have to agree with that, I think. I'm sorry. I, I feel like even now, the for the first time in maybe, I don't want to say 20 years, but maybe 15 I feel like the goalkeeper situation is the most un- one of the most unstable positions that it's ever been uh, mm-hmm. for the U.S. men's national team. And I, I, yeah, if Jesse Gonzalez wants to throw his hat into the ring, I think he's automatically someone that within the next uh, couple years could very easily upset Brad Guzan. Um, Guzan's not been good uh, either in the EPL for uh, Middlesbrough or for uh, in, uh, Aston Villa. I mean. He wasn't good at all uh, from the games that I watch and from everything that uh, I hear on Twitter and social media. I don't know. Obviously, I don't watch you know a lot of European soccer, so I don't know necessarily if that's someone that's got a future with the men's national team as much as it just seems like, well, it's his turn. And that's kind of how I, I feel like there's um, there's nobody really better unless you want to give it to Bill Hamid or to Sean Johnson. And look, you know, Bill Hamid has a lot of problems. Sean Johnson, what type of freaking dirt does he have on U.S. soccer? <laughs> I was very, yeah, there. I mean, when you look at especially the kind of season somebody like Tim Millie is having and to see Sean oh, Johnson on, chosen yeah. over him, like that is so confusing to me. Um, but I, again, I think that there's, I think when you look at Sean Johnson, you see sort of a very athletic person and you see someone that 
might be rough around the edges, but has so much like plus in that kind of spark area that 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 just raw athleticism that that, that you still have hope that he can kind of be trained to be just a better all around goalkeeper. But I, I don't know if that's going to happen at U.S. Men's National Team camp. Well, <laughs> he, well, you know, Bruce Arena being a former goalkeeper. Right. <laughs> I mean, you think of Sean Johnson as being like young and still growing and maturing. He's 28 now. Is he 28? I don't know how old any goalkeepers are, it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> he would never yeah. be like the upper 20s at this point. You still think of him as like 22 and like room to grow. Nah, he's pretty much who he's going to be at this point. So, yeah, I, he would not have been my choice to go with that, but we'll see. Again, I, I think this is all just sort of. He's not going to be on that final cut either. I mean, that's just a fact. I'm, I'm stunned by Tamelia's exclusion. I mean, he's been the best goalkeeper in MLS this year by a mile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading uh, Bill Reno's article on AmericanSoccerAnalysis.com, and um, and Amelia has saved based on the the shots that were taken against him, expected goals. He saved a goal every other game more than he should be expected to have saved. Like it's it's incredible how much better than the other goalkeepers he's performing. Yeah, he's been outstanding. It's yep. really incredible. And he's not too old. I mean, he's nope. 31. I mean, he's just a late bloomer. He's uh, the Chris Wondolowski of goalies. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had to have one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I feel like if you're bringing in Joe Bending, then you have to be bringing in Melia. Exactly, yeah. But not at the expense of Joe Bendick. Joe Bendick's good. He no, no, I, at the expense <laughs> of someone else. They both need to be there. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Guzan, I mean, maybe this is a, just a way to get him like top training because like he wasn't really playing at Middlesbrough at the end of the season, was he? Like, and now he's sort of in transition before he starts with Atlanta. So he actually was playing at the end of the season. He got a good run of oh. games to close up. Oh, the okay, season. okay. Didn't he get? Didn't he get booed? He well, he got he he was like booed off the pitch like the last game or something like that. I remember seeing a tweet about that. He had uh, one very rough game that got a lot of play on social media, and I'll, I'm with you. I don't. I'm not going to act like I'm an expert on on his performances in Europe, but never got the impression it was great. And then you know he had that one game that was just an absolute nightmare. So yeah, yes, you guys you guys nailed it. There was one game where he let the ball go through his legs, and he scored on a bunch of different times, and it was just horrible. So yeah, he has not looked convincing. All right, let's shift away from defenders and let's kind of focus on a couple of different guys. The first one of which it, Matt Doyle called the best American left back in MLS today, Greg Garza. Um, does uh, I, I think that this is an interesting fit. It's, it's great to see him start to kind of bloom. At the same time, does he really fit the mold with that diamond midfield or even that uh, the way that the left back kind of is supposed to provide width and with that pace and Garza doesn't, it's not like he's cement foot, but it doesn't also seem like he's a really a fleet of foot like you would have with Villafania or someone else. Yeah. I think that in that description, Matt Doyle made, you know, American and in MLS do a lot of heavy lifting, uh, to kind of, it's not a super elite group of people. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, yeah, like, Villafana probably would be my, my my preferred choice, but I'm really happy to give Garza a look. 
I yeah, so that. well, well, so you say that, but I mean, the other side of the coin for me, Justin Morrow is probably one of the most versatile and underrated, and because of his speed that he has, makes him uh, to me a more preferable option out there on on the flank. Um, ben, Justin, or <laughs> man, see, I went and made an idiot of myself, Phil. <laughs> Of MLS fantasy circles. I know, right? This is what happens when we start bringing our Nerd League guys New in. Faces. Yeah. Well, I, I I have a little thing that popped up from him, so that's 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 what happened. But uh, Ben, Phil, do you have anything on the on that left back scenario there? I mean, I, I yeah, I'm I'm not really sure. I don't know if like Bruce, I don't know if Bruce Arena is going to be messing around with the overlaps too much and his his mission has always been to at this point it's it's to get the points it's to rise to the top of the the hex table and it's i mean it's not to be bringing in too many you know tactical nuances and so while the modern game really is sort of demanding a lot of overlaps from your fullbacks to generate um, just because the the middle is getting clogged so much these days, I don't know if that's how he really wants to play this. And I think he really just wants to sort of prevent chances from happening. He wants to prevent gaps from opening up in the defense because when you're playing, you know, with Concacaf teams, if you give that up, if you're on the road, then you're going to be in a hole real quick. And it's it seems maybe more of a pragmatic choice to sort of go with that rather than bringing in pace. So. I think that would be my angle. I'm, I'm looking forward to see what he can do. So, I'm thinking of uh, left backs in the Western Conference, and, and they're basically foreign. Uh, I think if we're talking about yeah. the weakest part of this roster, it's the, the wide. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, and we'll shift up to the midfield. And predominantly, the, the interesting pieces are the central midfielders, you know, with Bedoya, um, Bradley, McCarty, McNamara, um, and then also you got uh, Christian Roldan and uh, Kalen Rowe as well. Um, they kind of add a little bit of uh, a little bit of diversity, you know. Obviously, Kellen Acosta is also there uh, as a great option. Darlington Nagby as well. Bedoya is one that kind of gets a bad rap, and uh, Believe me, I love hitting that Bedoya uh, bell every time he gets dispossessed out on the wing for try- when he's like running down and just. Tr- I-, I always want to say he tries too hard sometimes, mm-hmm. and, and it's frustrating. But the position that he's playing, and Matt Doyle has a point. We kind of got into a little bit, of, just kind of a disagreement on Twitter the other day. If he's playing that eight and he's carrying that water, he's interesting. If he's not. I, I, I'd much rather have somebody else in there. I'd ra- much rather have a Darlington Nagby. I'd much rather have, you know, Christian Roldan or you know, Kellen Acosta in that role, just because. I mean, if you're expecting Bedoya to hit that final ball into the box for a goal, that just doesn't seem to be like his skill set. And not to say he can't do it, just at the international level, I just don't see that being within his skill set. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, I think he does get a lot of a bad rap from fans, and I think that there's some some sort of like incident bias with that. You know, some some very noticeable mistakes he makes that kind of get highlighted. 
you know, in a position that doesn't always, the successes of which aren't always like easily broadcastable or, or something that you can, uh, you know, really point to. But yeah, he doesn't fill me with any sort of excitement. I think at times, I think he thinks he's better than he is, and I think that that causes a lot of problems. And uh, of just about anybody on that that midfield, that roster, he's probably the one that excites me the very least. So I mean, the, the, in, oh, sorry, uh, I was going to say in the USA's preferred formation now we have a diamond midfield with no eight. I think if we go to a midfield that has an eight, I think. Kellen Acosta is your first choice, right? So, so Bedoya has really moved down the depth chart in the last couple of years. And I think even before the, the World Cup and the, the year leading up to the World Cup, there's a chance that he gets overtaken by another player as well, like, like Dax or Christian Roldan at the eight positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this is probably the time that happened. I mean, this this is still a forty man roster, so there are going to be a lot of people going home. And I mean, he's he's been experienced with the team, so maybe Arena sort of giving him the nod there because he sort of has been he's been on the field a lot in the past couple of years for the U.S. But you know, this this is the camp where you know those newcomers can really make a statement and can sort of side by side show that you know they can own a starting spot in the central midfield. So maybe maybe that's Arena's game. So, uh, Phil, you kind of mentioned a little bit about the diamond again. I know I brought it up, and despite the fact that Ben's like, uh, maybe less about tactics and more about, um, and, and I really do believe this with Bruce Arena, it's more about the results and putting people in, just in the right places in general. But Kalen Rowe kind of fits. Um, you know, obviously, New England's been – you know, utilizing that diamond a little bit more and more um, over the last year and a half. Uh, Jay Heaps has been going to it. Do you, does anybody think Helen Rowe is someone that makes this 40 man or makes, uh, makes it onto what the 23 man roster? I personally would say no. I, I, I he's got a, a, probably the most work to do uh, for that. Uh, but again, I think this speaks to kind of what Ben was saying earlier that this is a really good example of, showing major league soccer players that hey you put in the work you have consistently good performances and you're going to be thought about we're not going to forget about you and, and we are noticing it and i think this might be that this is a good opportunity to get a closer look at him um he's a guy i've always liked i mean i, I know that he's not uh, uh he's not a best 11 player he's not he's not one of these like elite kind of guys but uh he just always seems to do a very good job and he's a very versatile player uh so i i, I I don't think he'll be making that final cut, but I'm really glad to see him in the conversation. Bellman, you can ask you you, you can tell me right now if you want to pass on this question. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I've over the over the last uh, two two and a half years, I'm becoming less and less enamored with Michael Bradley, and, and it's not because he's bad, but I feel like he's wildly inconsistent and has really inconsistent moments in the game. Do these bad moments, should we be focused on those bad moments at all? Those moments that kind of stick out in our mind, uh, kind of the opposite of those good moments, those YouTube moments that stick in our mind for certain players. Should we, should I be looking at the whole of what he does rather than those, um, those kind of those incidents that he creates? What, where do you stand on the Bradley crisis? Uh, I, I think he's been such an important part of the team, sort of, I mean, both in the game and sort of spiritually in terms of being the captain, sort of 
in terms of motivation. Like he he's an example setter, and you know he's I think I think the line that sticks out for all of us is at the end of the Portugal game when he gives up the ball and then Cristiano Ronaldo ties it up and puts yeah. us in not a great spot to move on, which we've sort of looked out from. And it's that that's sort of it where we've pushed people forward. He's being the defensive midfielder, but he does a misdistribution, and suddenly we're on the back foot. And I mean, it, I think that stuff just sort of has to happen when you're playing his role. When you're lying deep, you're trying to create plays, you're trying to get people in front of you to connect with the ball. And I don't like it's risky, but I don't know if we can really fault him for that happening at all. If it maybe maybe there's there's a point where it becomes too often, but given given what he's you know provided for the team and sort of the positional stability and the chance creation. You know, I think I think we have to forgive him some of those mistakes. No, and, and I don't know if either one of you guys noticed this as much, but I feel like he plays, and I don't say I shouldn't say I feel I've noticed he plays further back for the U.S. than he does really for Toronto. I feel with Toronto, just looking at the chalkboards, you can kind of see he's a little bit further up the pitch, and not because he's playing in ten. I th- pretty sure they're very similar positions that he's playing um, or roles. I shouldn't even say positions, but roles. So with that being said, I kind of wonder if that also has an influence because you see he has a much higher pass percentage with Toronto and we're talking about one, two games. So, you know, these, these are entirely small sample size, but the games that he does end up having, they're usually these, he, he, he's not as, tidy I guess is is probably the apt description with the ball um, with the U.S. and I kind of maybe attribute that to him playing a little bit further back and having a little bit playing a little bit more riskier passes I'm not sure if anyone has has anything (laughs) on that but that's just my observations the the difference I noticed between the USA Bradley and Toronto Bradley is that in Toronto they really make a point of of using their shuttlers to kind of funnel the ball into him. And he's kind of like at the end of the long tunnel and, and makes the tackle. And, uh, and then it seems like, like you were saying that there's quicker, shorter passes for Toronto. Whereas for the USA, he's, he's, he's a lone defensive midfielder. He's kind of, he, he's stranded a lot of times, especially when he's uh, tethered to Jermaine Jones. Uh, he gets stranded as like the lone defensive midfielder where he's then exposed. Uh, he's not that quick and, uh, uh, and he really needs somebody to be funneling the ball into him. So I like uh, Nagby and Johnson as his shuttlers because they both have a good defensive pedigree. And, uh, and also, I think if we're going up, we've, we've seen Bradley recently against kind of inferior competitions and also with Jones. I'm kind of interested to see him against equal or greater competition kind of with uh, Kellen Acosta next to him, somebody that can that is positionally sound and uh, will help him make tackles in the midfield. So, I think with, oh. yeah, I think with Bradley, this is going to come across more of a uh, less of a, a tactics or, 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 or analytical expert here, more as a fan. I, I think a lot of what we see with him is just we know how good you know Bradley is and we know that he's not going to get better and i think that it's been such a long time that this has been by, you know that this uh, has been michael bradley's midfield that I, I think that there's a sense that we're all kind of just wanting to see what's next um 
and so I, I think that that's a lot of like the criticism you're seeing. A lot of uh, a lot of the backlash that he's getting is is more a result of that than it is for anything that he's done that's specifically terrible or awful. You know, I, I don't think he's been uh, that one incident that you mentioned against Portugal, notwithstanding. Um, I think the reaction you see to him is, is more of that than anything else. All right, uh, let's go ahead and uh, let's close this out talking about a little bit about the forwards. So, Juan Aguadalo, Josie Altador, Clint Dempsey, Dom Dwyer, Jordan Morris, CJ Sapong, and Chris Wondolowski. You guys all know, everyone at, here on this, if you're listening to this, you know how I feel about Chris Wondolowski. And I'm just going to say right here, um, I, I usually defend him to Hilt. I, I don't see him. I, I don't see why he's included on this. And, and look, he's been very I, – I don't want to say he's been very good. I think he's been effective in the small uh, opportunities he's had for San Jose this year. I think he's made the most of his chances. I don't see the same indicators as him being – a great or a very good player. Instead, he's kind of dropped down the season too good. And I don't see him being nearly as effective with the U.S. men's national team, especially now that you have Dom Dwyer. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to you, Ian. I know you're not a fan, but I feel like Dom Dwyer is the perfect person to replace the Alan Gordon, Chris Wondolowski, in-your-face antagonizer of the CONCACAF-esque foe. Yeah, I want to be clear. Like the things I dislike about Dom Dwyer have very, very little to do with his actual soccer playing, <laughs> and uh, more to do with the things that you just described. He's just a very—he's um, a get-in-your-head kind of player. You know, he dives, he fouls, he complains, he yells at the ref. You know, he does little elbows. He's just that kind of guy, and for all of those reasons. I do not like him, and I feel like those same reasons make him an extremely effective player uh, in CONCACAF. So I, I'm okay with it uh, overall. I'm very curious to see how it goes. Um, I uh, Yeah, like you said, I think he's he's going to be a great guy to bring on late and just, just kind of harass people and uh, kind of play like an aggressive uh, sort of striker role, which is really, really neat to have. I mean, I think he's just reliable in terms of, you know, production. It's boarding KC on his back for so long now. And with, without him, there's no way they would be regarded, you know, as highly as they have been for the past couple of years. So, I mean, that's that's the kind of player you want to be bringing in. So, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think he is going to be that, that Alan Gordon, you know, bring him on late. People are going to be tired. And then he's just going to be a bull in a china shop in terms of getting in the right spots. You know, pushing off defenders and getting as many shots on target as he can. As far as players that I don't know are going to get any minutes, Big Africa, CJ Sapong, <laughs> dude. Uh, you know, I've been I've been saying at, at the end of the last season. You know, people kind of were like, "Oh, well, he started out really well," but and even the, like uh, a couple of the podcasts that you know I cycle through. At the beginning of the season, it was like, well, he's having a good season so far, but mm-hmm. the, guy's, the guy's legitimate. Like, I can't believe Philadelphia tried to replace him this offseason. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't fit in my skull. Like, I don't get that. And with that being said, I feel he could be somebody that 
I don't want to say I, I I put in the liner notes a breakout player. Maybe that's a little like just shot in the air type stuff, but I feel like he could be somebody that could at least in this in this type of setting and Concacaf could be somebody that stands out. This is a great opportunity for him to make a name for himself in, in this, and I, I really, really hope to see him get minutes. Um, and you talk about how crazy it was that Philly went and tried to replace him. Uh, yeah, I agree, and they utterly failed at it too. And but maybe like that kind of just lit a fire under him. I don't know, but he's come out this year, and he's just been uh, undeniable. And I, I really like to see that quality, and I think the U.S. men's national team could use some of that. The other, uh, the other individual that uh, I'm personally excited about is uh, Juan Aguadello. You know, Aguadello, uh, he, for whatever reason, Jay Heaps had him playing a number 10 that wasn't quite like a creative number 10. And I think the idea about it was to give him the ball at his feet further back outside the 18. So he kind of had some space to run at defenders. Uh, you'd kind of see him drift a little bit wide in that in that kind of quasi ten role, and it just never really cemented. He he actually lost them. He became dispossessed more because you know you're 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 roaming into uh, space that you're not taking on fullbacks necessarily. You're taking also taking on these defensive midfielders. You know the Ozzy Alonzos, the Roger Espinosas, the the guys that are just tenacious that are just going to rip that ball from you and go about their day. Um, so with that, I don't feel like it really worked. But since he's been moved to the striker role, whether that was last year or this season, he's just been phenomenal with how many shots and how much uh, the positioning that he's able to to get into. I'm really excited. I feel like Juan Aguadello in so many ways is kind of I don't I, he's going to push Josie Altador. Uh, in all the right ways that you want to see, you want to see two guys that just absolutely want that starting position, and it's Joe. That position's undeniably Josie Altidore's, but Juan Aguadello, I think, if he continues to progress and continues to do the stuff that he's showing, and I know he's what he's twenty three, twenty four at this stage. So I mean, you're going to start at some point. You are what you are, and I think you guys all kind of made that point already. But Juan Aguadello still growing. Not just physically, but now at this point, he's at the peak of his physical abilities, and he has that that uh, mental game that he's maturing. And I just feel like he's there's so much potential still to squeeze out of him. I'm very excited to see what he can do, and if this is going to be an opportunity for Aguadelo to start getting minutes that says, hey, come World Cup time, this is a guy that we need on the roster. I think I agree with you with that last, that last point. I think he's definitely going to be on the World Cup roster, you know, if he follows this trajectory. But, you know, I'm just I'm looking at his numbers compared to Altidore's, and I don't know if he's going to make the final roster. I, th- I think Arena's bringing him in to, you know, get him back in, the, back in the swing of things, you know, get him accustomed to having, you know, all these players as his teammates and, make, you know, Checking to them, making combinations with them, but just looking at what Aldador has been able to do with Toronto so far this season, you know, with, in terms of chance creation, you know, hold up play, I still don't know that Agadella can provide that complete of a, of a striker role. I think he's very good at, you know, getting the ball, making something creative happen, either finding someone else or usually trying to take it himself, but 
you know, we'll, we'll see if it's if it's going to work out this Gold Cup, if he's going to be able to make a, a major role for himself. Well, he's probably in the Bobby Wood role, right? He's probably sitting in that Bobby Wood spot rather than in the Josie Altidore spot. If you're, if we're going to okay. continue to go with the two strikers, so that's probably mm-hmm. an apt description because Josie has okay. been amazing. But the problem with Juan Aguadillo and looking at some of his numbers, you know, and you, you, what well, we're we're a numbers site, but if you actually contextualize for like what positions he's played. Um, the, the numbers go astronomically high. <laughs> so when you actually start um, taking them and you control for the positions that he's played, when he's actually played striker, those numbers and those expected goal per 96 go much higher than what they are because um, they're extremely low for when he's playing in the midfield. Mm-hmm. If we're putting this into the, the World Cup frame of mind, I mean, we're going to take four forwards to the World Cup, right? So I think Dempsey, Josie, Bobby Wood are basically, you can pencil them in right now. They're, they're almost in pen at this point. We have three really good informed strikers. Then, so there's only one spot left. I mean, all these guys on this list are going to be fighting for that last spot, basically. So I think maybe Juan Agudelo is leading that list now, but that's tough. There, there's multiple good strikers here that are going to miss out. Phil, you and I both know that Clint Dempsey has been terrible this year. And look, he, he just does not have a World Cup spot. He, he's just going to drop off. Yeah, two years. It's, a, I guess, one year, if not at this point. Yeah, it's, it seems a bit further away, but we'll see. It's, I don't think you can count Dempsey out. Like, you, you try, but you just can't. He's just going to keep proving everyone wrong. That's what he's well, about. Harrison's being a little tongue-in-cheek here because uh, they – Multiple people have written about the Dempsey problem that, that Seattle has, which is that supposedly Dempsey and Ladero can't be on the field together or else they get in each other's way. And I think Harrison's uh, gone out of his way to disprove that theory. That, that is correct. Actually, um, both <laughs> Ladero and Dempsey have actually, and despite the fact that they've never, well, I'm sorry, uh, it was actually last month. They finally one had assisted the other, but but until that point in time, they hadn't uh, committed like a goal or assist off of each other. So the that was the underlying thought process. Was uh, however, that was highly not true. Just looking at how um, how much better as far as positioning and shot creation, Dempsey was with Ladero on there, and how many more shots and uh, expected assists that uh, Ladero was getting with Dempsey on the field. So, I mean, they, they worked really in tandem, and it's, it's very funny that if you strip away penalties um, from across MLS, if you just strip penalties and you control for run of play, Dempsey actually has the highest expected goals per 96 in MLS right now. And it, it's just kind of silly that we have this narrative of, well... He's just, he's not scoring goals. So he's not a good goal scorer right now. He's just inconsistent. Or he's not as good as Josie Altador because Altador has more goals. I mean, it's laughable. Okay. And that's what I, that, that's, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. So, um, so underperforming expected goals. I think that's the the eye, the eye problem right now is that Seattle's just not scoring in the way that they are creating chances. True, absolutely, and uh, <laughs> that could be um, another podcast and discussion that 
we could talk about for like 30, 40, like two hours. Um, on your schedule tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Call me after work. We'll talk about Bruin. Um, okay. So looking at some of the other cursory things, there's a few different players that were omitted from the roster. Sasha Kleschen being one of them. Um, Sasha Kleschen leads MLS in expected mm, assists. Mm, mm, mm. Settle down, settle down, settle yeah. down. <laughs> Lee, you got Lee Wynn. Lee Wynn, um, who, you know, he's getting a little bit older, so maybe he doesn't fit the mold of, of what uh, Bruce Arena is trying to do. But Lee Wynn also is up there on the uh, expected assist leaderboards as well as um, on the goal scoring side. So, um, there's a few others. Do you guys got anybody else that you're kind of like, how did this guy get left out? I'm, uh, I'm looking at Sporting Kansas City. They're on top of the West. Uh, the best goalkeeper in the league was left out. Benny Failhaber, a World Cup veteran, who, who, Arena uh, has been leaning on his, uh, his veteran uh, guys that have been there, done that. So he fits the mold as to a person that should be called up. And Aiko Para at defense. I think he's been possibly the best defender in the league this year. And the only excuse I can think of leaving him off is that he has a, an injury history. I mean, if he's healthy now, let's let's play him. I agree with all of that. Yes, one hundred percent. And yeah, Aiko Para is so amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just a physical specimen. I mean, for years we've wanted him to be healthy enough to bring in. In a situation such as this, like a Gold Cup, it's... I mean, let's not be completely uh, naive about this. The U.S. is going to storm through the group stage. They're probably going to storm through, you know, the semifinals. Everything else, I mean, are are we comfortable with that? Is this this event a finals or bust type situation? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like we either like we either face Mexico or Costa Rica in the final, and depending on how that rolls out. I mean that the the loss to Jamaica in the, the previous Gold Cup was so embarrassing. I I still remember that night where I was and how embarrassed I felt. I mean I was already way past fed up with Klinsman, but that was the moment where I it turned to anger. Uh, that we should definitely we should not be losing in a semifinal of the Gold Cup. We, I mean, the only acceptable loss would be to Mexico in the final. And even then, I, I want it to be a competitive, you know, one loss, one goal loss at most. I can agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's final or bust. There's there's no excuse otherwise. Mm-hmm. Well, that about wraps it up for us here on this podcast and this episode. Thanks everybody for chiming in, Ben and uh, Phil. Thank you very much. Ian, as always, it's a pleasure to all you guys that are listening. Please go out and rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. Go out and rate us, click the like button, make us feel better about what we do. If you actually like what we do and we'll see you here in a couple weeks. Adios. Shut your face, high school jerks. We're about to show you how this works. Are we cool? Laser beams. We're about to awesome all your dreams.
Disney squirrel? Uh, Chip and Dale, aren't they Disney squirrels? The uh, the rescue rangers? They're chipmunks. Oh yeah. Well, I had, <laughs> no. It's fair. I that that pa- that long uh, pause wasn't me judging you. It was yeah. me like thinking back, going, "Are they? Are they squirrels? Yeah. What what else could they be? I feel like there's something else." else. Yeah, they are chipmunks. That's a very good point. Uh, but I feel like they probably had some squirrel friends. I don't know. It's been a while since I visited the Chippendale Rescue Rangers universe. Um, but I imagine there were squirrels there. 
Sure. I don't see any reason why there wasn't. 